Well, it's great to be with you here this second week of Advent as we celebrate leading up to uh, Christmas Day, our Savior's first coming, but also celebrating His second coming as well because we anticipate and eagerly await His return to make all things right. Um, I, I, you know, this is the time of year where Christmas specials take over. And uh, there's traditions, I'm sure, in your family of what Christmas specials you would watch. Uh, Elf has become a huge hit in our household. Uh, You have this, uh, uh, you know, person who thinks he's an elf who doesn't really fit in as an elf. And um, he has to find his family and the ridiculousness of that whole story. Uh, I think of... Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop motion from the 60s, is one of my favorites. Uh, They played it every year for some 50-plus years, uh, I heard, until now it's on uh, Apple TV+, Plus. I guess. You can watch it on demand. But uh, you you remember in Rudolph, there was that they get to the Island of the Misfit Toys, where uh, Rudolph feels like he finally belongs because he's with the misfits and the rejects and the losers and the defects, the, the toys that weren't quite right, the outcasts, the outsiders, and of course, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas uh, may be a favorite. If we polled, it might be one of everybody's favorite. And um, the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, that famous tree, has become uh, so well-known, it's become a meme where people buy Charlie Brown Christmas trees unironically to put up rather than a full-blown Christmas tree. Again, uh, Charlie's concern in that for the true meaning of Christmas. Um, And what these stories, it's amazing to me, they all have in common is how at Christmas time, there's an awareness of the poor and the humble nature of the Christmas story. And how even in all of these, these Christmas specials, there's some thread of that flowing through these stories of the unlikely, the poor, the humble, the outcast. They're the ones who become the, the main character and find out this, this true meaning of Christmas in some way of giving and loving, and it's better to give than to receive. And of course, in the Charlie Brown Christmas, there's this wonderful declaration from Linus about this good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And through the Gospel of Luke, God is also demonstrating His concern for the downtrodden, the outcast, the poor, tax collectors, sinners, Samaritans, Gentiles. And... We see this from the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 1 today in our text. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading it this week in preparation that Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The wisdom of Solomon there as he gives us that proverb, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Have you ever experienced that? You'd been hoping for something and your hopes were dashed. Your, your desires were not met um, and it actually made you 
physically sick, mentally sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It's like this, this, this renewal and, and, and re-energizing of our lives. Well, Luke 1 is all about the hope that has finally come. The God who keeps His promises. And if the story were a screenplay, it might start with the opening scene being the golden age of Israel. David is on the throne. He's victorious in his wars, and peace is in the land. And he comes to the prophet Nathan, and he wants to have a conversation with Nathan about, it's time to build a temple. We have peace, we're victorious, we're prosperous, and we need to build a house for God. Look at my palace. But God's house is a tent. And of course, God in a dream to Nathan, through the prophet Nathan, tells David, you're not going to build me a house, David, but I'm going to build you a house. Now this was a thousand years prior to this episode in Luke 1. Talk about hope deferred. Every one of the descendants of David, you you would imagine every time one of these women became pregnant, they might think to themselves, will this child be the one that God promised would sit on the throne forever? Would this child be the Messiah? The hope. And every time they visited the temple that Solomon built, or later the second temple, they might think, would the Messiah soon come to this temple and keep His promises to His people? Well, that's what we have before us in in Luke chapter 1. I want to start in verse 26. The Father's surprising power brings great news. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, At face value, this is quite an unexpected recipient of this news. In fact, the prior scene that we didn't read where Zechariah is a priest in the temple and he's ministering before the the altar and Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple and gives that promise of John the Baptist. And of course, Zechariah doesn't believe and so he's struck mute until the baby's born, but You have the angel coming to the temple. That makes much more sense. After all, the temple is where God's glory dwells. Shouldn't it be the place where the Messiah would come to the temple? The place where God is in the midst of His people? And yet, what happens? The story in Luke that began in a temple where the angel appeared to Zechariah near the altar of incense moves to the middle of nowhere in Galilee. 
In fact, a couple hundred years ago, scholars were thinking that Galilee didn't even exist because none of the ancient writers ever mentioned the city. It was nowheresville. It was not what was expected. And and then the angel Gabriel comes to a woman who is betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph, verse 27, and he's of the house of David. So here's, okay, here's a descendant of David. Could it be the case? Except for in verse 26, when the angel comes and sent from God to this city of Galilee named Nazareth, He comes to a virgin. And in fact, it's repeated again. The virgin's name was Mary. And then she's going to have trouble with what the angel says in verse 34. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? This is not rocket science. The idea that a a girl, a young woman who is betrothed but who had never been with a man could not get pregnant. And so this unexpected recipient of a virgin and this emphasis on her virginity sets up the miracle of the child's conception. You see, in Scripture, barren wombs had been opened before. You think of Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or what we heard in 1 Samuel with Hannah. But becoming pregnant as a virgin is a miracle never heard of before in Scripture. Now, what the angel does do and what Luke tells us is that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And other than his name mentioned here, he doesn't play any role in this episode. I thought Jason did such a fantastic job last week painting the picture of what Joseph would have thought as he received this revelation from Gabriel. And what he would have felt and and how he responded in faith and how he was obedient. And here we see Mary's perspective. The angel comes to her and gives the exact same message. We we can see this as we read through it. The exact same news that you're going to name him Jesus. That he's going to be the son of the most high God. Implying that he is God. God with us. Using even the name Lord, Yahweh, for Jesus, the Son. The angel tells her she's an object of God's grace. And he explains what the the visitation means, but he isn't going to explain everything that's going to happen to her. In fact, the next two chapters in Luke, um, Mary spends most of that time in wonder and pondering and treasuring these things in her heart, Luke tells us. Which, by the way, Luke in in chapter 1, as he introduces this gospel, says, I wanted to set forth an orderly account. He's writing to this man, Theophilus. And so it's pretty clear from the first couple chapters that Luke went and spoke to Mary. And all of this story that we see in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that are unique to the gospel of Luke are from the perspective of Mary. And by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 19, it says she treasured all these things in her heart, pondering them, meditating on them, thinking about what does all this mean. Imagine her as she's retelling this story to Luke so he can write this gospel, still pondering and treasuring these things that she would be the one to give birth to Jesus the Messiah. What an incredible 
blessing. What an unexpected recipient. But it was a long-expected fulfillment. As I said before, since the time of David, the nation of Israel has been waiting for this Messiah to be born. To this young country girl of humble means, God through Gabriel reveals two of the greatest mysteries in the universe. The Incarnation and the Trinity. It's implied, isn't it? How could this one who is, how can God the Father send this one who is also God the Son? And there's not two gods, but one God. But there's two persons, at least here, who are God and the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in this passage. And so there's three persons who exist as one God. And our minds immediately, it just hurts, doesn't it? It hurts, and yet this is the God we worship. This is the God who's revealed Himself to us. And then in the incarnation, you have Jesus, who is Mary's Son and God's Son, fully man and fully God. Not a demigod or a superman. Not half and half, but the God-man. The one who is fully like us in His humanity so that He can die in our place for our sins. And the one who is fully God in His deity so that He can actually pay the price for sin and pay it completely so that we're not still in our sins. The incarnation is an incredible miracle. It's incredibly good news. And He explains, He just asserts this to Mary. This young woman. And in fact, Gabriel makes seven predictions about Mary's child in verses 31 to 33 that prove him to be the long-expected Messiah. The first four relate to the uniqueness of this miracle and his identity as the Son of God. Uh, Look at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. So the first thing Gabriel says is you are an unwed virgin are going to conceive miraculously and you're going to bear a son second you will call his name Jesus and as we heard last week from Jason Jesus is the name Joshua Yeshua in Hebrew Yahweh saves this is the name of not only who he is, but what he's going to do. He's going to save his people from their sins. It's a prophetic name. Gabriel goes on to say he will be great and be called. He will be great. It's almost an understatement, isn't it, in our language, because great doesn't have the same force as what the angel here is saying. It's the greatest. I don't mean to disparage it. He's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. We understand when when we talk about football players or baseball players, if we say they're great, they're just one of many who are great. But if you say they're the goat, well then, there's nobody like them. See, this is what the angel is saying. He's not one of many who are great. He is the greatest of all time. He will be great. Why? Because He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He is God. That is incredible. 
That should stun us. I, I, every year I try to read Athanasius's On the Incarnation. I'm a nerd. It was written 1,800 years ago. But actually, it's pretty easy to read, relatively speaking. In fact, C.S. Lewis has an introduction to On the Incarnation where he says, for every contemporary book, you should read a book from, a, from an old guy, a dead guy. Because they give us insight and perspective. And 1,800 years ago, actually 1,700 years ago, uh, Athanasius was defending the deity of Jesus and the reason he came and he wrote on the incarnation to be sort of a, a discipleship manual for young Christians about what it means that Jesus became incarnate. And what's incredible about reading that is Athanasius says it's not just that he came to the manger and was born, it's that he came to go to the cross and to die in the place of his people to save them from their sins, to restore what was lost in the fall. He, in fact, he spends the first 10 paragraphs talking about the fall of man and sin entering the world and idolatry through sin and how we've just made a mess of everything and we need a savior. We need a hero to come and fix everything that's wrong. And Jesus is that hero. It's why he's great. It's why he's the greatest. Only he could save us from our sins. And the last three statements Gabriel makes are about him keeping God's promises. The Lord God will give to him the throne of David forever. David his father. So this is the promise made to David is finally fulfilled that this is the one who's going to reign forever. In fact, that's the second thing that says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his reign, there will be no end to it. It's never going to end. Jesus is king and he's on the throne. Think about what we sang. Think about all of those hopes that we have as the the humble and the broken and 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 think about the the expectations that man we want things to be made right maybe your life is not going well this week maybe it's a mess and it's all you can do to hold it together what do you need you need someone to help you you need someone to deliver you to save you to restore you, to give you joy and peace. The only one who can do that is Jesus. He's the only one. No one else in this world will do it. Spouses will fail you. Family members will fail you. Co-workers will fail you. Leaders will fail you. Nobody else will meet your needs like Jesus does. This is what the angel is saying. This is what Gabriel is announcing this long-expected promise. Our Deliverer is coming. That hope that they had been hoping for for hundreds of years, finally, in the city of Nazareth, to Mary, the angel comes and says, oh yeah, you're going to give birth to Jesus. And He's going to save his people, and he's going to rule and reign forever. He's going to bring in the kingdom of God. He's going to restore what was lost in the fall. P put yourself in Mary's shoes or sandals for a moment. R. Kent Hughes, in his uh, commentary, says, from all indicators, 
her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Even after she gives birth to Jesus. That's the life of Mary as far as we know it. And from earthly standards, what did she accomplish? She lived a normal life. And our culture tempts us to think that a normal life is unsatisfactory. That it's something to despair of. And yet, she was blessed by God. She found favor with God. Uh, Verse 28, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. Verse 30, you found favor with God. (laughs) Incredible. Why? Verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. And so this is supernatural, isn't it? The supernatural beginning to the life of Jesus, Mary betrothed to a descendant of David, would also think, could my child be the one? But, but she would think, once I marry Joseph, and once we get pregnant, and once I have a kid, not as a virgin. The news was beyond her comprehension. She's completely baffled. She says, how will this be? Verse 34. Her virginity is an obvious obstacle to her pregnancy. It can only be overcome by the miraculous creative power of God. Basically, what Mary responds is she says, I don't know what all this means, but I trust God to do what's good. What an example to us. What an example of faith that we may believe God's plan even when we don't understand. I mean, if you were hit with that news, I mean, we know the story. We've been rehearsing the story every year for hundreds of years. But imagine hearing that news for the first time. I don't know that we would have responded with that much faith. I think we would have been more like Zachariah earlier, who was like, you've got to be kidding me. My wife's going to get pregnant. She's been barren. God's power is not something belonging only to past history. This is what Mary teaches us. It's at work in the present. And God's power is mysterious. Mary didn't understand everything. She's pondering it in her heart, but... It is not distant from us. Sometimes we act like God is not working anymore in the world. That miracles, they only happened in the past. But but man, in my life, could God really do anything for me? Absolutely He can. Absolutely. He can and He does. In fact, God's power empowers the powerless. And I want to mention one other thing. What we see in the life of Mary is that God delights to use us to accomplish His divine purposes. See, Satan would love nothing more than to tempt you to think that you're not necessary to God. That you're not needed. And in one sense, it's true. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He's perfectly content in Himself. It's what we call the the doctrine of aseity. But, But... God delights to use us. He delights to use human beings for His purposes, to accomplish His plans, to bring Him great joy. And in doing so, God gets the glory and we get the joy. And Finally, what Mary teaches us is that God's plan 
is better than our plans for ourselves. God's plan is better than our plans for ourselves. Think about your life. If you've been a Christian any length of time, I guarantee you, your plan for your life did not go as you intended. And God had a plan to bring you through things that you would have never chosen to go through. And yet it's been better for you than anything you would have planned. This is what God's saying to Mary is, listen, you're going to be an outcast, Mary. Nobody's going to believe that there was a miraculous virgin conception. The world's going to think, yeah, right. It's a good excuse. That doesn't happen. That's not how science works. That's not how babies are made. And yet the reality is this is what happened. This is the miracle. Well, second, we see the Spirit's witness through Elizabeth and John, which is incredible. It brings great hope to everybody involved. Verse 30, oh, I, 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary heard about Elizabeth from the angel that she was six months pregnant and Mary knew that, her, that Elizabeth was barren and couldn't have kids and so she runs to Elizabeth's house to tell her the news. And they greet one another and three things happen. The child, John the Baptist, he's not called John the Baptist yet, but John the baptizer in the womb leaps for joy. Second, Scripture tells us Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in her filling of the Holy Spirit, she announces, third, that Mary is blessed and interprets the meaning of her child's leaping theologically. What do I mean by that? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth confesses the lordship of the baby in Mary's womb, who we know as Jesus. She calls him Lord, the mother of my Lord. And that's no accident. The term is used 23 times in these chapters to refer to the God of Israel. And so Elizabeth is saying, the baby in your belly, Mary, is the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's God. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can truly call Jesus Lord unless the Spirit gives Him the ability. And here the Spirit of God moves Elizabeth to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and moves John in Elizabeth's belly to leap for joy. What an incredible thought. 
See, this is the startling thing about this story. The angel comes, Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. You're going to give birth to the one who is not only human, but God. Do you believe that He's Lord? And Mary exhibits great faith. She says, back in verse 38, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Elizabeth declares that he's Lord. And, and in the context, Luke is writing this to affirm that what the angel gave to Mary is in fact true. It's testified not only by Elizabeth and baby John in the womb, but it's testified in the pages of Scripture that Jesus is Lord. Have you confessed Him as Lord? Is He your Lord? Do you believe that He is Lord? If you don't know Him, come to Christ. The verse that brought me to faith, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. What a message. Jesus is Lord. And if you confess Him as Lord and believe that He died for your sins and rose from the grave, you shall be saved. Not might be, maybe, someday down the road if you do good enough or work hard enough. No, if you believe, you shall be saved. What an incredible message. What good news. That should bring you great joy. Because it's not what you do it's what christ has done in your place it's who you believe come to christ if you don't know him well third the son's miraculous birth brings great joy verse 46 mary said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has looked down on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months until John was born and returned to her home. Luke here records Mary's hymn of praise, what is known as the Magnificat. Because in the Latin translation of the Bible, that's the first word. But Mary sings this hymn of praise to God. God is the one who lifts up the humble, verse 52. God is the one who fills the hungry with good things, verse 53. God is the one who comes to the, the barren and the humble and God appears and manifests itself and to those who are last in the kingdom, they shall be first, Jesus says. He's going to say that later in Luke chapter 13. See, the gospel, the good news, Jesus himself announces in the gospel of Luke that the Spirit has anointed him to bring the gospel to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, sight to the blind, released to the oppressed. Chapter 4. 
even his ministry to, to those who were the humble and the poor and the outcast was not accidental, it was intentional. He sought out a tax collector. He sought out a zealot. He sought out fishermen. This is what he did. And one of the signs that the kingdom had come was that God was visiting the outcasts. And when Jesus was asked by John the Baptist whether he was the one the people expected in chapter 7, John answered that the blind, or Jesus said, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, the poor, they're all receiving salvation. Now Mary here, Luke is putting her up as an example of an ideal believer who believed God's promises. She ends up praising God. She not only believes the promises, verse 38, but Luke records this hymn of praise for what God has done. The introduction to the hymn, verses 46 and 47, to magnify and rejoice. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My, my total self, all that I am. And who is she magnifying? The Lord. The Spirit rejoicing in God my Savior. This parallelism in the, in the song, why is she praising God? Because He looked down on the humble estate of His servant and all generations will call her blessed. And it's been true. What an incredible thought. Mary, this young woman, gave birth to Jesus. And her story is recorded here in Luke chapter 1. And her response. And she praises God and rejoices and magnifies. We see a number of reasons in verses 48 to 50. She's rejoicing because His salvation comes to the poor and the downtrodden. He's been mindful of the humble state of His servants. And from now on, she's called blessed. And she says, verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. She rejoices in God's power. And this idea of the one who is mighty, the Hebrew phrase El Gabor, the mighty God, this is the God in Deuteronomy who works His wonders for Israel, leading them out of Egypt. Here, the mighty power is not deliverance from Egypt, but the birth of Jesus, the miraculous conception. Holy is His name, she says, verse 49. God's holiness here, I don't think it refers simply to His moral perfection, but it refers more to His acts of righteousness and justice. In other words, He keeps His promises to the humble and lowly. He brings judgment on the unrighteous and the proud. He's holy and He does holy things. And He has sent Jesus, the Son of the Most High, in a miraculous way that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary. And there's mystery there, isn't it? Back in verse 35. The Holy Spirit coming upon her in the power of the Most High, overshadowing her. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And now she says, Holy is His name. 
And she praises him. I love this verse 50 for his mercy. So the the one who is all powerful, the one who is holy, who does righteous, holy deeds, he's also the one who is full of mercy. And he has shown mercy to Mary. She's shown mercy. He has shown mercy to Israel, to the world. This is good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. The angel's going to shout out in the next chapter. Not just Israel, but all nations. And isn't that why we praise the Lord? Here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet, and He's been merciful to us. And it's good news of great joy. Then she goes on to speak in verses 51 to 53 of His justice for the lowly and the hungry. So if the first verse of the song is referring to the great things the Mighty One had done for Mary, the second verse is looking forward to the result of the child's ministry. Verse 51, He's shown strength with His armies, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God's arm is frequently used in the Old Testament to speak of His mighty deeds, His working on behalf of His people. In Isaiah, for example, He rolls up His sleeve. He bears His arm. Some of you are old enough to remember that was a line in a song. When He rolls up His sleeves, He ain't just putting on the Ritz. Our God is an awesome God. It doesn't age well, does it, putting on the Ritz? But... uh, What Rich Mullins was getting at is he bears his mighty arm to actually do something. He's not just being showy. He's not just flexing. He's actually going to do something. And here Mary says he's done something. He's shown strength with his arm. He's accomplished what he said he would do. Through Jesus, he scattered the proud He's exalted the lowly. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. He filled the hungry. After all, He's the bread of life. And she concludes in verses 54 and 55, His promises are certain. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. In remembrance of His covenant loving kindness, His has said. He keeps His promise. And this promise wasn't just to David. This promise goes back to Abraham and back to Eve in Genesis 3. It goes back to the beginning of the human race that God would send a descendant and a child who would would undo the curse, would crush the serpent's head. And Mary, she's well-versed in Scripture. She's well-versed in the promises of God. And she thinks back to all of those stories of Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and all of the stories of the Old Testament that this one is coming greater than Moses who's going to do what Adam couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do, Jesus is going to do. And she says, I'm going to give birth to this little one. What an incredible thought. Charles Spurgeon on this passage says, All good comes to us from God the Father through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
He's meditating on this word mercy. I love to think of this, that all the grace, mercy, and peace that come to you, all the grace, mercy, and peace that come to me, come from the heart of God. It reveals His character. Spurgeon goes on to say, How many wagons there are upon the road of grace, and all of them heavily laden. One stops at that brother's door, another waits at this sister's gate, but they all started from one spot. And look on the side of the wagons, and you will see the name of the same proprietor on every one. They're gods. All these blessings, all of this grace. Uh, we lose the imagery of wagons. Maybe we don't. We would say the Amazon truck. The Amazon Prime deliveries that come every day. You know, that stops at this person's door, that person's door. Who's the owner? Well, all of the grace of God that comes to us day by day is from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what an incredible message as Mary receives it and she thinks upon it. And, and, and of course, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this is the first coming of our Savior. But she's speaking to even the second coming of our Savior. That He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to bring justice and judgment. In the kingdom of God, there's going to be a great reversal of this world system. The last will be first and the first will be last. Mary articulates it here in this song. The humble, poor, and outcast become first, and the proud and arrogant become last. And Jesus Himself is born into humble means, but they're the means by which the Father's promises are fulfilled to His people in verses 54 and 55. And He is the mediator of the Father's salvation and the Father's judgment. What an incredible thought. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Holy is His name. When uh, I was growing up, and even into our um, younger adulthood years, uh, when the kids were little, uh, we, had a, we had a tradition in our, at Christmas Eve gathering among the Rippy family that the youngest person had to, who could read had to read the Luke account. Uh, of the Christmas story and to hear it from a child's voice was always striking to me as I heard it now I'm the oldest so I never had to read it I guess really um, when we started this tradition but what was so striking to me is that it's one thing to hear it from the voice of you know the oldest in the family the patriarch it's another to hear it from the the voice of a child stumbling over words who's maybe not as familiar with the story because maybe it's not the first time they've heard it but it's the second or third time they've heard it and it strikes your ears a different way and thinking about this story that's so known to us as mary is receiving this revelation from the angel how it must have hit her ears as a teenager and then, of course, Luke is recording it after Jesus has died and been buried and rose again, and he went and spoke to Mary again to get this content. And these verses are, he wrote down what he heard from Mary. And she's reflecting upon all of this and pondering. She had been pondering from that day for all of those years. What does this mean? Well, her 
reflections in this song are incredibly mature, aren't they? Oh, they're divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. This one who was born is our Savior, Jesus, who is the Son of the Most High. And He actually does save and deliver. He doesn't just show off and flex. He actually acts and works and saves and delivers and heals and transforms. He changes lives. He changed your life, hasn't He? He changed mine. This is good news. This is why we celebrate. He's the one who can deliver us even today. What a hope. Father, thank You for this time and this Word. May You bless our communion now as we think and meditate upon our Savior Jesus. Father, this season I know can be difficult for many. The loss of family, the loss of relationships, loneliness and fears. and The holidays can be filled with sorrow and anxiety rather than joy and peace. And so our hope is ultimately not even in a holiday. Our hope is in the person of the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's our peace. He's the one who's our joy. And as we meditate and reflect upon Him now and fellowship with Him through the table, may the Spirit of God give my brothers and sisters the peace that passes all understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I pray in His name. Amen.